in the realm of music history in this period. Uh, and I want to talk to you about a case study uh, today. So we're going to focus on one particular instance uh, out of the many examples that I could have picked. And that is um, a case study that involves Claudio Monteverdi. Um, Monteverdi, for those of you who are maybe not too familiar with music history, was a revolutionary. Uh, why is Monteverdi so well known today? What did he do? Music students in the class? Yes? He wrote the first opera, the, 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 the first work that is considered to be an opera masterpiece, and that is Claudio Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. Uh, if you were in Schwab last uh, November 13th, as part of the Institute's Moments of Change event, uh, you will have heard uh, Acts 1 and 2 of Monteverdi's uh, L'Orfeo. So he was certainly a revolutionary in the way in which he brought a whole new genre of music uh, to the forefront. Um, this type of um, innovation, all of these innovative uh, ideas that Monteverdi first presented, were met with quite a bit of resistance at first, actually throughout his, his career, but especially at first. And there is a famous controversy, and that's what we will be focusing on today briefly, and that is known as the Artusi-Monteverdi controversy. Um, <clears throat> and it takes place uh, between the years 1600 and 1607. Before we go there, I want to talk about the tradition that Monteverdi was uh, growing out of. Monteverdi was uh, very much a bridge figure between the Renaissance period and the early Baroque period. And so we have to understand a bit about what it means to talk about Renaissance music. Here are some of the uh, very basic concepts. We could have an entire year to talk about this, but this is the crash course in 30 seconds on what Renaissance music, what some of the basic elements of Renaissance music are. Uh, most of the music is vocal. It is polyphonic, meaning that you have multiple voices singing at the same time. It is a cappella, meaning that the music is uh, usually without instruments. It's unaccompanied music. Um, there is very, very rare use of dissonance. And when dissonance is used, it is uh, very controlled, very, very controlled. So uh, it follows very strict rules that were established throughout the Renaissance period. Uh, and those rules um, determine how a dissonance is approached and how a dissonance is resolved. Um, music is often described as serene, calm, harmonious, controlled, well-balanced. And we'll listen to one example of that. Uh, who were the most uh, influential, prominent figures of Renaissance music? Um, what was the tradition and authority of Renaissance music uh, represented by? I put down some names, Ockham, Desprez, Larue, uh, Palestrina, and the very famous uh, theorist Zarlino that we'll talk about in just a second. But let me give you a sense of what this music of the Renaissance period sounded like. This is a work... Uh, uh, by Pierre de la Rue. It is uh, from one of his masses. Uh, the year is uh, circa 1515.
once again, all of these elements that I outlined for you, I think, are pretty obvious in this one example. Many other examples like this that I could have picked, but this, I think, in a nutshell, gives you the basic elements. Um, I mentioned uh, Zerlino, who is um, a theorist from the Renaissance period, from the uh, 16th century. And we're not going to talk about this in detail, but just at a glance, you will see that the kind of um, treatise that he writes, and we're referring here specifically to the uh, Istituzioni Armoniche Treatise from 1558, uh, is approached in, in a very scientific way. Uh, he thinks of music as science, essentially. Uh, all of these diagrams that you see, which are derived from this treatise, uh, have the uh, the goal of essentially describing music as a science. Intervals are described mathematically. Uh, different ratios between different intervals are described in a scientific sort of way. So this is how Renaissance theorists, including Zerlino, approach music. Very controlled. Everything is laid out in a systematic, scientific sort of fashion. Um, I mentioned that we are at a great moment of transition. And to understand uh, what and who is behind uh, the initial impetus of this change, we have to go back to Florence, which I know I shared with you a bit last time, and um, talk a bit about the influence of the Florentine Camerata. Uh, who was or what was the Florentine Camerata? It was essentially a group of intellectuals who gathered in Florence in the years between circa 1575 and 1592 to discuss science and the arts, including music. Uh, they revisited the platonic idea that music must, able, must be able to express strong human emotion. So this goes back to what Linda Woodbridge was saying earlier and what Charlotte Houghton was also touching upon, that is this idea that uh, change is okay, but you must base innovation on the writings and the thinking of the past, in this case, Plato. Uh, and finally, uh, this gathering had a very strong influence and eventually led to the creation of new musical style and to new musical genres, including, again, the birth of opera. Now, I put these two quotes on the board because I think they uh, exemplify some of the parallels that you see uh, between the writings of the ancients, in this case a quote by Aristotle, and the writings of the contemporary Florentines of the uh, late 16th century. So we have a quote from Aristotle and a quote by Vincenzo Galilei. Galilei was, by the way, the father of um, Galileo Galilei, the famous uh, astronomer, and he was himself a member of the Florentine Camerata. Um, I have highlight, highlighted myself some of the key words in these two quotes. Music must have an influence if characters are affected by it. And that they are so affected is proved in many ways, not the least by the power that the songs exercise. When men hear music, even apart from the rhythms and tunes them, themselves, their feelings move in sympathy. For in listening to such strains, our souls undergo a change. So it's really all about the effect, the power that music has on the listener. Now contrast that with the quote by Galilei, 
1581, it appears to be clear that, that, that the music of the ancients, so once again, the return to antiquity to justify the presence, that the music of the ancients was a single melody and a single air, however many or few voices were singing. It should not seem strange if it had such lively effects in moving the affections of others. So this idea of power of music is common to the writings of the ancients and the writings of these members of the Florentine Camerata who were truly revolutionizing our concept of music. Um, Monteverdi started writing um, madrigals, essentially, uh, in the late 16th century. These madrigals were performed widely throughout Italy before they were even published. And uh, one of the madrigals that was being performed widely uh, across Italy and even beyond in some cases was the madrigal that was published later in 1605 but first performed in uh, 1590s. And that is the madrigal Cruda Amarilli. Cruda Amarilli is one of the madrigals that the um, supporters of tradition found most disturbing. So here we're looking at this shift. And the, the people who latched on to tradition found this madrigal very disturbing. And we're going to look for a few minutes here at what it might have been uh, that was uh, so revolutionary on the one hand and so disturbing on the other. Um, first of all, look at the text of this madrigal. Cruel Amaryllis, who with your very name teach bitterly of love, alas. So pretty powerful poetry um, behind this madrigal. And I have uh, marked in red the word that Monteverdi takes in this madrigal and the word that he will set to a dissonance. Uh, that is breaking all of the rules of musical counterpoint that had been established earlier in the Renaissance. Uh, let's listen to this. I have uh, two... Um, recordings of this. One is up to this line that you see, and nothing was too controversial about that music. But then this little bit right here, and especially the section that I have circled right there, this is the part of the madrigal that really created a lot of upset. <laughs> So uh, you, you do hear some bit of dissonance, but nothing too dramatic, and uh, contemporaries were not uh, too upset about this. But the next section is what really caused a lot of upset. Okay, so that section that I encircled. Uh, why? For those of you who know something about music, there is a dramatic dissonance right there. In the bass, you have a G. Uh, in the soprano, you have an A followed by an F. And it's too bad we don't have a piano right here. But trust me, that creates a very stirring uh, dissonance. Uh, G in the bass against A against F. Those are two very dissonant moments. 
Um, so here we get into the Artusi-Monteverdi controversy. Uh, Artusi was essentially a theorist who had grown out of the Renaissance tradition. He was very well familiar with the writings of uh, Zerlino that we just uh, talked about and other similar writings. And he was uh, extremely well-versed in the science, if you will, of counterpoint, of how it is that you take two or more musical lines and put them together under very strict rules. Look at this language. Uh, what uh, Artusi does is uh, he sets up a dialogue very much in the Soc Socratic tradition that was common in the Renaissance. And again, I have highlighted some of the words. Uh, Vario and Luca are the two protagonists of this dialogue. Um, and I'm not going to read every word here, but just look at the language. This music is astonishing. This music deserves blame. Uh, this music is harsh to the ear. It is offending. Uh, it creates confusion. It is imperfect. It is barbaric. So, uh, Artusi is not mincing words here. He really goes all out and says, you know, what Monteverdi is doing is absolutely terrible. Here we have a composer who is unable to write good music. Why? Because he is not following the rules of counterpoint. So he has very, very strong feelings about all of this. Um, and this debate between Artusi and Monteverdi goes on for quite a while. And I urge you to read the original uh, exchanges because they are really a chance for us to get into the minds and uh, the thoughts of uh, contemporaries of the early 17th centuries. How does Monteverdi defend himself? Uh, essentially by establishing what he calls a first practice and a second practice. He says the music of the Renaissance, which is so well balanced and harmonious and consonant is perfectly fine, and we should continue to write in that tradition. That is what he calls the first practice, the prima pratica. And here's how he describes what the first practice is. By first practice, he, this is in the words of Claudio Monteverdi's brother, so he, Claudio Monteverdi, understands the one that turns and the perfection of the harmony, that is, the one that considers the harmony not commanded but commanding, not the servant, but the ruler of the words. Uh, and this was uh, founded by those first men, such as Ockham, Josquin, Depré, Pierre de la Rue, and by the most excellent Zerlino with the most judicious rules. So he's saying, we have come out of this tradition as exemplified by all of these composers and Zerlino, and that is perfectly fine. I am perfectly happy writing in that tradition, but that is a first practice. In other words, the prima pratica is uh, the practice where harmony is of primary importance. Versus uh, Monteverdi's conception of the second practice, the seconda pratica. Uh, by second practice, Claudio Monteverdi understands the one that turns on the perfection of the melody, that is the one that considers harmony commanded, not commanding, and makes the words the ruler of the harmony. For reasons of this sort, he has called it second and not new, and he has called it practice and not theory because he understands its explanation 
to turn on the manner of employing the consonances and dissonances in actual composition. Okay, now we could talk about this for an hour, but suffice it to say that in the second practice, uh, it's the text that is of absolute essential importance. The text makes it legitimate to break the rules of counterpoint. Let me illustrate one example in a second. Um, but here's where we get into how does Monteverdi go about defending uh, his views? Uh, this, again, is a quote. Uh, the combination of words commanding with rhythm and harmony obedient to them affects the disposition of mind. Here is what Plato says, blah, 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 quote from Plato, and not harmony alone, be it ever so perfect, as the Reverend Zerlino concedes in these words, and then a quote from Zerlino. So going back to what Linda Woodbridge was outlining for us at the very beginning, uh, here we have Monteverdi going back to tradition, turning back to the ancients, in the case of Plato, and to the established authority of the Renaissance, in the case of Zerlino, to justify what he does in his music. Breaking the rules is therefore justified in order to express the words. The ultimate goal is to affect the listener and to convey strong human passion and emotion. And we saw this in all of the examples that Charlotte Houghton just showed us with uh, Caravaggio. Uh, you really have human beings with all of their imperfection and with all of their passion right there before your eyes. Same thing in music. Here is a great example of everything we have just talked about. Uh, this is from a uh, beautiful work by Monteverdi known as The Lament of the Nymph. Again, if you were in Schwab on November 13th, uh, you heard The Lament of the Nymph in the second half of Apollo's Fire's concert. Um, and um, let me just play this right now. And you will, um, first of all, um, well, just follow along here. Look at how... He has taken, he has isolated that one juicy word, the word pain. And let's listen to it. And let me just tell you that you will hear an extreme dissonance on that word dolor, that word pain. Okay, how many of you heard something really, really strange going on right there? All right, in case you missed it, let me just play it on the piano for you. Ouch. Double ouch. Okay, and now play it as a chord. Okay, sorry, that really truly is painful, isn't it? But that is what Monteverdi wants you to experience. He wants you to experience pain, the same pain that the nymph 
is about to experience when she will enter uh, in this uh, Monteverdi Lament of the Nymph. Uh, so taking, isolating important words of the text, words that really underscore human emotion, human passion, is really what this music, uh, this transitional music between the late Renaissance and the early Baroque is really all about. And what better way to set up uh, the actual lament proper by the nymph, which follows the induction that you just heard with that incredible dissonance. Uh, and uh, if you're not familiar with this work, I urge you to buy a recording. It is one of the most uh, exquisite works in all of Baroque music, if you ask me, in all of classical music. Um, and let me just give you a very uh, quick, brief flavor of the beauty of it. Uh, the, 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 uh, the lament is sung by the nymph, uh, the three male voices that you just heard in the introduction come back throughout her lament and basically say, oh, you poor nymph. Oh, you poor nymph. We are so sorry. Um, so, again, the expression of emotion. Thank you very much.